You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we talk about the billionaire founder of Dell Computers, Michael Dell. As you'll learn on the show, Mr. Dell started his company out of his college dorm room and now has a personal net worth of over $28 billion. During the show, we talk about how he built his company and the things he learned along the way. We cover his company's rocket ship-like growth, and we also talk about some of the struggles that he had to overcome to achieve such enormous business success. So without further delay, here's our discussion on billionaire Michael Dell. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. All right. Welcome to the Investor's Podcast. As usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson. My name is Preston Pish. Like we said in the introduction, we're going to be covering Michael Dell. And so we're just going to jump straight into the questions. Mr. Dell was asked, what was the story behind starting up Dell? This was his response. When I was freshman at the University of Texas, I was going to school, had every intention of going to school. And I was kind of playing around with this as a hobby while I was going to school. It was sort of a really fun hobby for me because, you know, I was really interested in computers and, and kind of selling upgrade kits and, you know, enhancing computers. And, you know, my parents kind of got wind of this and they were really upset because, you know, they thought that I should really only focus on going to college. My father's a doctor, my brother's a doctor, lots of doctors in the family. So I was going to be a doctor. And, and so they were very, very upset with me. Michael, you got to get your priorities straight, you know. So around uh, Thanksgiving of 1983, my parents kind of made me commit that I wasn't going to do this computer business anymore. I was only going to focus on my studies. And so for that lasted about 10 days. And it was during that time that I decided that I was going to start a company. Actually, you know, my parents kind of telling me to stop doing it is probably what caused the company to get created. If they hadn't done that, it might have just been a hobby. But what I kind of reflected on in those 10 days is that I really love this. And it was enormously exciting, tremendously fun. And so like any other 18-year-old who wants to do what their parents don't want them to do, you just don't tell them. And so that's what I did. I uh, kind of went about path to start the company without really telling my parents. I uh, kind of moved into a larger apartment that had really high ceilings so I could kind of stack things up and, you know, manage to conceal it from them for quite some time. I basically kind of came to an arrangement with my parents. I said, look, okay, I really want to go do this. And I know you don't want me to go do it, but I've checked with the University of Texas and the way it works at UT is that you can take a semester off and you can come back. And so I said, well, why don't you we'll agree to this? I'll take the semester off, the fall of 84 you know, semester, and I'll go and do this. And if it doesn't work out, I'll go back to school. And if it does, I'll just keep doing it. And so they, they agreed. If they hadn't agreed, I probably would have done it anyway, to be honest with you. So in May of 84, I incorporated the company and off we go. I just love the story. <laughs> I don't really know what to say because the story tells so much. I think my comment on this would be if you're a parent and you have a child, 
that is going against the grain and you're trying so hard to push them in a certain direction, you might want to just replay that story because sometimes the best way to exercise control is to provide free will, right? In this scenario, the the harder the parents pushed, the harder he went the other way. That's a cool story. I think for every time you would play a story like that, the hit rate or the success rate might be one out of 10. And so I think that's important for people to keep in their mind as well as like Stig and I are providing an example of a success, a major success, like you couldn't get a bigger success. And that was his story. But we could probably go and record Joe Schmo, who's now not owning his own business and working for some other firm who has that exact same story and he wasn't successful. I think it's a great story. It's a cautionary story at the same time. But I think it's a common story that you see from the people that we study. They almost all start out like that. It's really neat. Yeah. And I also feel that as an entrepreneur, it might be easy for me to say so, but if you won't allow your kid who is 18 years old and you know live in a dorm, if he's not starting a company, I mean, when should he? I mean, it's not whenever he is 28 and he has, you know, kids and wife and that mortgage to pay. That might not be the right time, but, you know, you're 18 years old. Why not give it a break for like six months or so? The reason why I wanted to play this clip, partly because of the story, I kind of like the story about like how he moved into a place where the idea was that he could just stack up the equipment that he was selling. That was quite a cool entrepreneurial story. But also studying so many self-made billionaires as we have here on the show, I'm always trying to decipher how much of a role luck plays. How lucky was it that whenever he started up in 84, he could sell out, you know, specific IBM PC compatible parts and upgrades to that. Was that just luck? Bill Gates has talked so much about being born in 1955, how that was the luckiest time he could be born because otherwise he couldn't have been so successful in terms of acquiring the programming skills and really start a business based on that that was so big simply because no one else did that. Was that just luck? I know that this, by definition, you can't really answer this. You know, you can't say if Michael Dell was born 20 years before or 20 years later, how successful would he have been? We don't know. But I think that someone like Michael Dell, and you will get to learn much more about him here later in the episode, I think he would be very successful with the drive that he just has, almost regardless of when he was born, perhaps not where he was born, but when he was born. And if he wouldn't be $20 billion successful, which he is, I'm sure he would have done quite well and he probably still wouldn't have told his parents. The next question we have, you started with almost no capital. How did you manage to grow so fast? And this is his response. I started with $1,000, almost no capital. The interesting thing about the business that we started was that because we were selling directly to the customer, customer would pay us often right at the time we shipped the product. You know, we were able to get credit lines from suppliers and we had what's known as a negative cash conversion cycle, which is a very good thing in a business like ours. We still have that today and it helps us generate significant positive free cash flow. Essentially, what it means is that when you look at the complete balance of how fast do our customers pay us and how fast do we pay our suppliers and how much inventory do we have. The net of all that is that we actually collect money way before 
we pay the money out. And so that's a beautiful thing. And in fact, it allows a, a company to grow very quickly because you have sort of negative working capital. We didn't require lots of capital. We weren't as efficient then as, as we are now, but you know, we were able to grow quite rapidly without a ton of capital. Now, we were growing at such enormous rates, we needed some capital because we needed some buildings and we, we needed some infrastructure. And so you know, we got a little bit of, of capital. We got a credit line. Then we eventually did a private placement, went public in 1988 on NASDAQ and attracted some capital so we could expand around the world and continue growing. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So we came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network in the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. I really like what you said here about your money cash flow in and cash flow out. It's basically what is referred to as the cash conversion cycle, which is, if you're an accounting geek like me, it's something I like to talk about. If you look at how fast Dell grew, it might seem that it's almost impossible. You know, how can you have a company that's buying equipment and then reselling that to customers and start off with a thousand bucks and then, you know, in, in a matter of no time, you're just like this huge company that just IPO'd. Basically what he talks about here is that it boils down to cash flow coming in and when cash flow is going out. Because if you can get the money up front and then pay your suppliers later, 
it doesn't really matter if you start with a thousand bucks or a hundred thousand bucks. And if you just reverse this really to get a grasp of this, say that you even have a hundred thousand dollars, if you have to buy, say, hundred pieces of equipment for a thousand dollars each, and then had to wait thirty days to collect that money before you have the cash, and then go out and ask your supplier, oh, by the way, could you send me some more? And I'll have to pay upfront for that. It's not impossible, but the speed you can gain with the opposite is just exponentially different. That's also one of the reasons why you've seen some of these major tech companies like Amazon and why they have been able to grow as fast. Yes, it's a great business model and yes, they have great products, but a lot of it really comes down to something that we tend to oversee, which is the cash conversion cycle. It's so important in growing companies. All right. So the next question we're going to play, Mr. Dell was asked, what are your thought processes on creating a strategy that could sustain high growth for years to come? And the question was asked in the context of very early in his company, what were those strategies that they would implement in the coming five years? So this was his response. I was 22 years old. We actually had a a pretty important meeting about seven or eight months earlier. And we kind of went off for a few days with some of the really smart people in the company and a few outside advisors. And we said, well, what are we going to do with this company? I mean, this thing's really growing fast. What do we do? So we, we kind of had uh, three strategies that we clued in on as our, as our growth path for the future. First one we said was, you got to go outside the US because 96% of the people in the world live outside the United States. And you know, it's going to be at least half the opportunities outside the United States and you can't just be a domestic company. Second thing we said was we really want to go after large companies because they underwrite their purchase of technology through productivity and they can afford the best tools. And that's we know is going to be a lucrative opportunity and you know we really want to go after that in a big big way. Kind of a odd thing for a little company like ours to go after, particularly with IBM and others you know, in the field. The third thing we said was differentiating our business is going to be really key. And the way to do that is on service. You've got to have better service than the competitors. So we invented this idea of on-site service for the PC, which had really never been done before. The way this would work is, you know, let's say you went to computer land. There used to be such things in the United States and around every street corner. And you bought a computer and it didn't work. Well, you'd put it back in the car and you'd go there and fix this thing and come back a week or so later and they'd give it to you. So our idea was that you'd call us on the phone, say, hey, my computer's not working. And we'd come the very next day and fix it. You know, it turns out there were all sorts of third-party companies that had field service networks, companies like Xerox, for example, who had all these technicians all over the country who were kind of waiting for copiers to fail. And so they had this fixed capacity. And so we could buy up that excess capacity at way less cost than we could put it in ourselves and instantly have you know, way better service. And actually, Xerox is the company we, uh, we use for quite some time in that. Customer isn't so much interested in all the bits and bytes and how fast is the computer and what does it do. They want to know that this installation of a critical system that they're putting inside their business is really going to work well. So they're looking for a solution. And so we have to know a lot about their business and we have to really be able to consult with them and tailor a solution that meets their needs. After hearing the response there, I 
The thing that I kind of took away, his first answer for his first of the three strategies was to go international to create more growth. But I, I really liked the second two responses because the second two responses were focused on basically the customer, right? It wasn't, hey, we're going to do this, which is a benefit to our company. It was, hey, we're going to do this because it adds more value to the customer. And then that's going to put us above and beyond the other competition that isn't providing this value to the customer. And so the first one he said there was that they're going to become more lean in their manufacturing so that they can produce a product that's lower price. And then the second one was this service model that he got into a lot of depth on that was not being conducted. And I think that anytime a founder is customer focused, it is going to help them dramatically succeed against whatever competition they've got. And so it was interesting to see how he how he named those two things. I'm curious to hear Stig's thoughts. I really like the third part that he brought up with the service. Well, you didn't really have IT or very little, so you didn't have an IT department. And I think my takeaway here is that as business people, we need to understand that while we can be super nerdy about something, say computers or whatever it is, most people don't care about that. I mean, most people can't tell the difference between megahertz or gigahertz or they don't know, but they do know whether or not the computer is not working. And that was really what he was getting at and why that was also so consistent with the second part of the strategy. We will deliver a great service so it always works, but we will only do that for the customers who can afford to pay that, for the big companies, because the big companies have high opportunity costs. So it just, it needs to work. And we can charge superior rates for that because it's just so important. And really his idea of that customer focus, as you talked about before, Preston, I think it's so important. Just make it easy for the customer. Give them no excuse why not to, to buy. Well, what I like about it is it provides a sustained cash flow too. So if you can crack into this revenue stream of service and you can win in that area, that's going to be providing a consistent cash flow. Whereas the rest of his business, which is hardware sale, is more of a, I sell it, I have to wait three years for some customers, I might have to wait five years for another customer before they make another hardware purchase. And then they have to be happy with the service. They have to be happy with the performance of that hardware in order for them to buy my hardware again. I think the service model was a great approach that a lot of people at this point in time were not doing, and it's there providing this constant cash flow. And so then he's able to take that money, reinvest it into better processes so he can make his hardware better. And you can kind of see how his model and the thinking kind of compounded on itself more so than his other competitors at that point in time. So the uh, last question we're going to play for you, he was asked, which challenges and setbacks have you had and how did you overcome them? And this is his response. We had problems in 1993 that I think were multifaceted. One big challenge is that the company had grown so fast. You know, we had grown from in 1988, you know, maybe 150 million to by 1993, almost 2 billion in revenues. And the infrastructure and the systems and processes uh, was not really keeping up. In fact, in one year, we grew from less than 900 million to over 2 billion. It was a real mess. We sort of had to stop, reevaluate things. We had real challenges in how fast can you build factories and 
how fast can you hire people and put up, you know, new buildings and hyper growth, you know, sounds really fun and exciting. But I learned the hard way there is such a thing as growing too fast, where the wheels sort of come off, you know, <laughs> and you have to sort of take a time out and say, wait a second here, let's prioritize. And I was absolutely to blame. I mean, we were going and doing so many things at one time because we were really excited. I mean, we were like, okay, we're going we're gonna to go in this business. We're going to go in that business. We're going to go this country and this new product and this new service. And it was just too much of a good thing. And so we had to really hone it back. Olympic was a project that we created. Still, it was there. And so we made a decision to recall all of those batteries. Now, the interesting thing, if you go back and look at when we made that decision, the popular wisdom was that it was an issue that was unique to Dell. And Dell was the only company in the world that had this problem. It must have been because Dell did something wrong in the way it designed its computers. Several weeks later, another computer company announced a similar recall for the same Sony batteries. And then several weeks after that, another company, eventually all of the companies that use the Sony batteries announced recalls. We were very proactive in doing it. And I think our teams did a fantastic job in sort of doing the right thing. You could have had all sorts of arguments about, well, it's a really small percentage or those kinds of things. But we actually knew the problem was there, even though there were debates about, okay, is it going to be six batteries that fail or is it going to be 10 batteries that fail? doesn't really matter. One battery failing is one too many. And my experience is that when you find a problem, you fix it as fast as you find it and just move on. And whatever the consequences are fixing it, you just deal with it and just keep going. His first response there in reference to growing too fast, I kind of see this from two different vantage points. So in tech, especially, if you're not moving fast, you're going to get clobbered or you're just going to miss the boat. There's a book called Inside the Tornado, and this is actually one of Steve Jobs' favorite books. If you're in tech, I would highly, highly encourage you to read this book because it talks about how you can have the best product if you miss the timing of where the rest of the market's at or you're, you're just a little bit late to the market. You can just totally miss the boat. It's hard for me to put myself in Michael Dell's shoes as to why he was growing at the speed he was growing and whether he could have dialed it back a little bit or he had to move at that pace just because of all the dynamics that are talked about in this book. And I'm telling you, this is a fabulous book, especially if you're in tech. But I think the downside of growing too quickly is the culture piece of your business, the long term sustainability of your culture. When you grow at that speed, you're basically putting butts in seats as fast as you possibly can. And you're not necessarily doing that filtering that you need in order to establish the culture that you truly want to have inside of your company. And so the long-term impact of this, this massive growth, is that you might be dealing with cultural clashes within your company for a very long period of time. And it might not even be something that you can correct. And that might be a really extreme comment. But I think that for me personally, I think culture is extremely important. If you have a product or service that doesn't need to move fast, you're able to sustain your competitive advantage because maybe it's something that's not tech related or the necessity to move fast is not there. I would tell people to go at a pace that allows you to continue to control that culture within your business because it's going to lead to a longer sustained success and control of what it is that you're trying to accomplish. 
Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with Public Investing, member FINRA, slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither Public Investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. 
It's interesting that you should mention Inside the Tornado and the advantages of scaling so fast. I'm currently reading a book by Ree Hoffman called Blitzscaling, which talks about this concept. It's a very interesting concept in terms of how fast should you grow, and especially if you're in a winner-takes-all or winner-takes-almost-everything kind of industry, why that blitz scaling is is so important and why you should sometimes you know ignore defects in your products and why you should ignore angry customers and it's a very interesting discussion in continuation of that i think it's interesting how michael dell talks about this growth but also how there are some problems with that in terms of say the idea of the batteries you know sending out flawed products you know how much time should should you spend on fixing the issues that you have and how much time should you spend on, you know, just keep on going because you need that first mover advantage. Whether it's professional or personally, I, th- I think it's very important to stay humble, which was really what I took away from what Michael Dell was talking about here. Be the first one to fix it. We are, as human beings, very good at forgiving and we're really, really good at people redeeming themselves, but we are not good whenever it comes to arrogance. It's this short-term pain and long-term gain because, of course, the extra cost is not fun and the media coverage the next day, it's, you know, it might be quite embarrassing for you as a person or for you as a company. But going back to the culture piece that you talked about before, Preston, you know, what really remains in that organization is to be proud of what they do because they know that the quality is there and even if it's not, it's going to be fixed. And then the image of the company who is humble. It's whenever we, we start becoming arrogant, you know, that's whenever you see politicians or celebrities really fall from grace. You know, you can't put yourself up on that pedestal. But if you do, the downside is just going to be so much more harsh for you. So blitz scaling is fantastic. The high growth is fantastic. But if you are not delivering the kind of product that you're proud of and you want to deliver, I don't see what the growth is useful for. All right. So uh, we hope you guys enjoyed some of the questions and responses that we played there from uh, Michael Dell. At this point, we're going to transition into a question that was asked from the audience. And we think that the question has a good parallel to some of the conversations that were happening with Michael Dell because it relates to finding a business partner. Now, this question was asked to us by Viom. This is what he asked. Hi, Preston and Stig. My name is Viyom Joshi. I've been listening to your podcast since 2015. You guys have been doing a great job. I've been loving it and uh, keep up the good work. The question that I had was to do with the startup culture that we have going on these days where people recommend that we find a co-founder who complements our uh, interests and our skills. So I just wanted to ask you guys how both of you met each other and uh, how you founded the Investors Podcast and more or less your journey on how you got to where you are today. Thank you for sharing and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you. Man, I'd like to say it was very strategic and we had like this whole plan. (laughs) (laughs) The fact of the matter is, is it was none of that. This is my vantage point. I'm kind of curious if Stig sees it the same way. So I started the Buffett's Books videos, the website, and stood up a forum. And on the early days of the forum, it was kind of me and, and like two people talking on the forum about accounting. And one day, this guy named Stig shows up. And you know we're probably posting comments that are four sentences long, like, oh, yeah, I like General Electric, or I like this company. And this guy shows up and all he wants to talk about is oil. 
And not only is it a is it a post about oil, but it's like a five page analysis just going into detail all about oil. And he just kept talking and each post just got longer and longer and longer. And I was like, who in the world is this guy? And so after, I don't know, after a few months of watching his posts on this forum and kind of talking back and forth, I shot him a personal message and I said, hey, tell me about yourself, whatever. And so he's like, oh, you know, I studied at Harvard and this and that. And I was like, wow, this guy, he's a pretty interesting guy. And so I was in the process of writing an accounting book at the time, but was really having, I was struggling with time and I was not able to get it across the finish line. And it was just like, this is never going to get done. But based on how this guy writes and he seems really, really aggressive in really wanting to be a part of anything finance related. So I reached out to him. I was like, hey, do you want to finish this book or work with me on getting this book done? And he came back. He's like, absolutely, let's do it. And so Stig and I finished writing the um, Warren Buffett accounting book together. And we ended up publishing that book together. And this was right at the point where the podcasting stuff was starting to become really popular. And so I said to Stig, I said, you know, I think this would be a lot of fun. We could just record conversation. Like you and I could just have conversations about finance, about what stocks we're looking at. We'll record it. And if we have five people that listen to it, we have five people that listen to it. I said, at the end of the day, it'll just be fun for us to have conversations about something we're learning. If we're reading a book, we can talk about that or whatever. And so Stig was just like, I don't have like a real radio voice, but I'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) And so we, we just started recording our conversations. You know, one thing led to another and here we are and, and there's people that actually listen to this. So I would like to say it was something that we had planned, but it really wasn't. It was just something that we did for fun and we kept doing for fun. And then it just slowly turned into a business. And so the thing that I would tell people about, at least from our vantage point, from our story is if it's not something that you are willing to I'll give you a perfect example. This episode right now, I woke up at 4.45 to record this episode. You have to love what you're doing to do that. There has never been a day where I've just dreaded doing this. Like This is just fun for me. And I think Stig would tell you the same thing. It's just, it's just a lot of fun. This is what we love to do. We love to sit around and talk about an income statement. That is not normal for most people. Most people would absolutely <laughs> hate that. And so you got to find a person who just absolutely loves the business or the product or whatever it is you're working on just as much as you, because if they don't, it's just not going to work in the long term. Two years in, they are going to be so sick of whatever it is that they're doing that it's just not going to last. So I think finding a partner that has the same passion and the same interest as you is extremely difficult to do. Now, one other thing that I think was a big advantage for Stig and I is because we have read so many books together, we have a very, very similar mindset on how our business should be run. It's almost hilarious how Stig will come to me and say, I think we should do this. And be like, yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. And vice versa. I'll go to him and say, hey, I think this is a bad idea. And he'll be like, yeah, you're probably right. Let's not do that. And I, I think one of the reasons why... And that can be bad at times because you need to have some friction points 
at certain points in time. But as far as the ease of like running a business, it is really nice to have a person who's grounded in a lot of the same fundamentals. And so I guess what I would tell you is if you're looking for a co-founder or you're looking for somebody to do the business with, I would highly encourage you to try to read some of the same books, especially if they're good core fundamental books, because you're just going to be in sync with each other. And I think that that's really important to kind of have that framework. There's a saying, I don't know where it comes from, but it says, if you want to go far, you're going to go together. If you want to go fast, go alone. And I think that that's really representative of whatever your interests are of starting a business. You got to kind of understand that mindset. If you're going really far, I think having a partner is really, really good. It's really hard to find the right person. And I just want to say this publicly. I really, really treasure my relationship with Stig. It is, man, I feel so blessed and so lucky. So Stig, I know I just took all the time, but let's hear your vantage point. So I experienced this completely different than you. No, I, I, I didn't at all. I think you described the story very well. Typically, when people ask, I always say that we met online because then people are always like, oh my God, <laughs> what, what, what happened there? But we kind of met online in the sense that we met on the online forum. You, know, you created Buffett's books and that's how we started to chat. And I think that was very fortunate. And in the way, I also think we create our own luck in the sense that who sits and talk about accounting on an online forum? I think you said some, something about it being serendipitous at some point in time, you know, just before we started the podcast. But, you know, sometimes I think back on that and be like, no, Preston, if you can find two people in the world who wants to talk about accounting and gap rules on an online forum in writing, it's not serendipitous. You're just two sad people with too much time. <laughs> so <laughs> perhaps that's more it. I almost feel bad about playing this question, you know, and talking about how person I met after having four questions about Michael Dell. It's probably not a fair comparison. The one thing I would say that the red thread here is really that he was having a lot of fun. He started this business up because it was a lot of fun. Then he realized he could also make money and, you know, he started growing and made a bunch of money, but it has to be fun whenever you start. Don't find a business partner or start by yourself to to make money. You know, if, if you start up by having fun, perhaps you will make money, most likely not, but it's not going to be the other way around. It's not going to be fun if it's not fun to begin with. That was also one of the things that we talked about, Preston, when we started that it had to be fun, first of all, then see where, where it takes us. Because going back to the old forum, which is not even online anymore, I wrote over a thousand posts over a thousand posts about accounting. Oh my God. And about oil, apparently also, I remember that, that specific thread you talked about. In my defense, if people were saying, stick has no life, it's absolutely true. So it's not really in my defense. I was on a one-year God leave for a job. I was technically not permitted to work or to do anything for a year. I was permitted though to sit and talk about accounting in the forum. I had a lot of time on my hands. And whenever I stumbled across this forum with people who were just like-minded, I was had this idea, if you just kept on giving, something good will come back to me. And that was you, Preston. No, and that's such a true statement. If you're just doing something because you love doing it and you're just trying to make a better impact, I think that everything else will kind of fall in place. I think when a person is chasing money, maybe they're starting a business because they want to make a lot of money. What you often find is if they're successful, because sometimes people can be successful and their pure motivation was to make money, and but their success is usually short-lived. What kind of falls out of some of those motivations is 
the person wants to make even more money. So then they go out and they raise venture capital. Next thing you know, they only own 5% of the business and they got some venture capital person that's breathing down their throat. They're absolutely miserable. They're in a position where they've made a lot of money, but it was just a completely miserable experience for five years or 10 years. Some people would say, hey, I'll take that. And that's fine. There's people out there that that fits their motivation. That's not something I ever want to go through. I want to be happy. I want to enjoy my time with my family. I want to uh, have an impact. And so for us, this was a great fit and it was very casually put together and just kind of happened. You know, Listen to some of Michael Dell's comments because Stig's exactly right. This is not about Stig and I, but it's more about Michael Dell. I get the sense from his response that he absolutely loved this stuff that he was doing. He was having a blast when he's telling the stories about back in the day when he's in college. He wasn't enjoying his classes. He was enjoying the stuff he was doing with creating hardware and selling it and having an impact in that way. So you got to take a look at yourself. What is it that you love to do? And really kind of make sure that something is centered around that. Because if it's not, I just I think it's hard for people to sustain the motivation to go through it. One thing I would like to add, because you specifically talked about how do you find that other part and what kind of skills should he or she possess? I would say that I would not find a person who would compliment me. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, especially in this day and age where, especially here in the Western world, you know, we have a culture where everyone has to have high self-worth. We celebrate diversity. Everyone is good at something. No one is, is bad at anything. It's all about, you know, complimenting each other. There's a lot of good reasons why that's true. But I would think in terms of finding a business partner, it's okay to have a ton of different blind spots. You know, it's, it's okay that you have a business partner and you still don't know how to do accounting or combined, you still don't know how to do design. I think that's completely fine. I think the one thing you need to look for in a business partner is having this narrow focus and how can you together become 5% better than anyone else so you can get that 10x, 100x return because you are better together that specific item. All right, Viam, thank you so much for asking your question. This one was really fun for Stig and I to respond to. In a token of appreciation for asking your question and getting it played on the show, we're going to give you a free subscription to our TIP Intrinsic Value course that we have on our website. If anybody's interested in checking out this course, it's TIPIntrinsicValue.com. Just go to TIPIntrinsicValue.com. The course there teaches people how to value an individual stock pick. So if you want to figure out the value of company X. It teaches you how to look at the accounting, how to determine the discount cash flow, how to do an IRR calculation. All of that fun stuff is all wrapped into this course. We're going to give that to you completely for free. So if anybody else out there, if you want to get your question played on the show and receive a free subscription to our course, it's a lifetime subscription. You can go to asktheinvestors.com and record your question. And if it gets played on the show, you get a free course. All right, guys, that was all that Preston and I had for this week's episode of the Investors Podcast. We see each other again next week. Thanks for listening to TIP. To access the show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. To get your questions played on the show, go to asktheinvestors.com and win a free subscription to any of our courses on TIP Academy. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making investment decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the TIP Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. Oh, 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 oh,